you have your Bibles, would you open them to Matthew, the sixth chapter? Matthew, chapter six. We're going to continue there in the Sermon on the Mount with, with a message entitled, The Antidote for Anxiety. Come up on the screen in just a minute. Finding Peace Through Trusting God, verses 25 through 34. There was a patient in the mental hospital who was one day holding his ear very close to the wall, listening intently, and he'd been there for quite some time when a nurse finally approached him and asks, What are you doing? Shh, he says. Keeps his ear pinned to the wall. Now she's watching him really closely going forward, and after a while, the patient motions her over, and he says, Listen. So reluctantly, she presses her ear to the wall, and is, I can't hear a thing. To which the patient replies, I know, and it's been like that all day long. <laughs> and I wonder, when it comes to worry, if some of us aren't like that guy listening at the wall. Do you worry? Most of us do from time to time. Now, as your pastor, I want you to know that I personally do not worry. I do have some legitimate concerns from time to time, but I don't worry. <laughs> but for those of us who do worry a lot, we'd stop if only we could, because we know what God's Word says about worrying. We know that, that Jesus spoke specifically about worry and that He commanded us not to worry. And we've heard all the metaphors we know worry is like putting your car in neutral and revving the engine. You, you burn gas and oil, and it's hard on the engine, but you don't go anywhere, and we've heard the others. Until we know there's always going to be something to worry about. We could go around this room right now and give testimony, and we'd find the usual suspects. But a recent survey revealed the top ten reasons people worry. And the slides aren't advancing, so you might have to advance them for me. There you go. Health and fitness, 73%. Lack of time for family or leisure pursuits, 49%. Children's problems, 43%. Job-related stress, 43%. Personal investments, 39%. Estate planning, 37%. Relationship with children, 34%. You see aging, income, and marriages rounding out the top 10 there. Now, some of you are saying, not, well, not, not me, preacher. I'm not a worrier. Now, from time to time, I may show due concern for this or that, but, but that's all. And some of you are like the man who said, don't tell me that worrying doesn't help. The things I worry about never happen. So, <laughs> and In our text, Jesus addresses what may be the sin we most frequently commit as Christians. We're going to read the text here. Would you please stand in honor of the reading of God's Word? Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, or about your body. What you will put on is not life more important than food. And the body more important more, more than clothing. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. It's really not going to advance, is it? Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing, Jesus says? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? 
Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Heavenly Father, speak to us today through the power of your Holy Spirit. Speak into our hearts and our minds. Father, teach us what we need to learn from this passage of Scripture. Familiar passage, Father, but we pray for fresh spirit and fresh truth and fresh relevance, Father, to be brought home to bear that we might be more transformed in the image of your Son, Jesus Christ, when we leave this place than when we came. In his name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. The English word worry comes from the old German word meaning to strangle or to choke. And later it came to mean something even more severe. It came to mean seized by the throat and tear, which is a pretty apt description, perhaps a little bit too vivid, but a pretty apt description of exactly what worry does. Worry is a kind of emotional and physical stranglehold, and we don't have to go into all the emotional and physical trauma and, disease and, and, and diseases that, that come about as a, as a result of stress. And amplifying our normal worrying concerns, we reside in an era that is absolutely characterized by chaos and confusion where that's unbelievable or how much crazier can it get? Are things that we say to news items that come up almost daily now where not long ago it was maybe once a year. Distressing headlines and social media alarmism, conspiracy propaganda, talking heads raging on television, and the random thoughts that all these can give rise to lead to everything from reasonable concern to debilitating anxiety. And it's easy to understand how that can happen. The what-ifs are immeasurable in our day. Not to mention, now more than ever, we're inundated with information, much of which is designed to exploit our deepest fears and our worries. So, so how do we equip ourselves to confront our most daunting fears without worry? How can we, come, how can we keep legitimate concerns from morphing into worry or worse, full-blown anxiety? What does Jesus say that will enable us to manage the trials and the tribulations of everyday life without worry? Well, it usually gets right to the heart of the matter. And he gives us a clear command against worry. Jesus begins our scripture lesson by being straight out, just saying, don't be anxious. He does it three times, verse 25, verse 31, and verse 34. Jesus says, don't be Anxious. Now, I'm going to give you some deep theological truth. It took many years of seminary training to get this. I'm going to give you the key to this whole passage. Don't be anxious, okay? If you're worrying now, stop. If you're not worrying, don't start. But this must be some, some more of that hyperbole stuff, preacher. I mean, he can't be serious, can he? How can Jesus, it seems, seems unrealistic for Jesus to tell us not to worry given the many things we have to worry about. And the quick answer, well, yeah, he's serious. And he's not only serious, but he quickly and very succinctly lays out the reasons why it's a waste of time for us to be worried. The first reason he gives us not to worry is because life is about so much more than stuff. The overarching context here is still money. Don't forget that. All the material possessions we value that we think we have to have. He's talking about financial anxiety in this part of the Sermon on the Mount. So back to what we talked about last Sunday, priorities. 
Priorities matter, right? It's not about getting more. More doesn't equal better. Remember, we need to learn to say what? I have enough, right? Okay, confession time. Last Sunday afternoon, after I preached that message, I was relaxing in my recliner in the living room before we came back for Deacon's meeting, a finance meeting. I was looking at a website at a smoker that I'd been looking at for months, and I said to Vicki, obviously without thinking it through first, <laughs> I think I'm going to pull the trigger on that smoker I've been looking at. And because she's such a good listener, because she wants to do what her pastor says, she says, no, repeat after me, I have enough. In case you're wondering, I'm not getting the smoker. <laughs> Apparently, I really do have enough. Jesus gives us three examples of areas we tend to fixate over. What we eat, what we wear, and what we drink. Beloved, we are more than what we eat and what we drink and what we wear. Though we do live in a day where, where people seem to just obsess about these things. When it comes to food, most of the people who've ever lived in this world and millions of people today have had to struggle daily to, to, to just wondering if they're going to get anything to eat at all. And we have a lot of folks in our culture today who have all kinds of concerns about food, ranging from animal welfare to the amount of sugar it has to food waste to the environmental impact of food production. I'm not saying we shouldn't be concerned about eating healthily or taking care of this planet, or about wasting food, or that we shouldn't dress neatly or shop for bargains, or that we shouldn't be, consider how much money we spend on foo-foo coffee and how we might better use those resources. Those are not unimportant considerations. But rather than beat ourselves up, let's just strive for a little balance in these areas, remembering that life is about more than food and drink, and the body is about more than clothing. In, in verse 27, Jesus, talk, Jesus talks about folks worrying about how long they're going to live. He, he just reminded us that life is more important than food and the body more important than clothing. And now he comes back and he says, and you can't add a single minute to your life by worrying about any of those things anyway. So, so then being anxious, worrying is a waste because life is about more than things. It's about more than the stuff we value. It's about more than the stuff we invest ourselves in that are this of this world. It's about more than the material and the physical. There is an eternal aspect to the life to which we're called to live that reaches beyond our imagination. We see so many folks today base their quality of life on the stuff that they have. Their toys, their vacation spots, their homes, their vehicles, their clothes. And Jesus reminds us just how misguided that mindset is. Building on what we talked about last week, Jesus reiterates how deceptive is the effort we put forth to acquire those things because they're temporary and they can be gone in a minute. We reference the fires on Maui as an example. Taken from us, destroyed, stolen from us, even when they're in our secure possession. No lasting eternal value whatsoever. And there's so much more in every one of our spheres of influence here this morning that really do matter. Our spouse, our children, our family, the rest of our family, our friends, our, our, our church, all have a higher priority or should have than things. Qualities such as truthfulness and honor and thoughtfulness and compassion and patience and faithfulness and unconditional love are off the chart more important than things. Life is about more than the possessions and the money that we accumulate. 
So we need to remember that life is about more than things, and we need to remember how important we are to our Father. Not only do we offend God by fretting about food or clothing or money, but I suggest to you that we also demean ourselves. Because worry says to the world, I'm not worth anything. I'm, I'm of no value. You say, well, how, how is that, Pastor? Anxiety undermines God's benevolence and our inherent worth as individuals that are created in His image. And Jesus points to the birds as our instructors, saying, God provides for them. When we see them and we hear their song, uh, their, their, their message is, Why are you concerned? Their melodies ought to remind us of God's providential care. And if He tends to small creatures, certainly He'll care for you. We're important to God, and because we are, God cares about us. Say, God cares about me. Yes, He does. He who made the heavens with His fingers does not count it trivial to make wildflowers grow. Why? Because He wants to? Because they're pretty? Because He's creative? Because He likes beauty? Because He wants us to enjoy them? Because He cares about flowers? Because He can? And even cares about grass? We're getting toward the end of summer. Fall's going to be here, and then winter, and the lawn's going to die. It's going to be cold, frozen, dead, under half a foot of snow sometimes, here before we know it. But then in a few months, it'll all be back. And you won't have to do anything, or you could bring in a specialist. You could plant some seeds and, and fertilize it, but you wouldn't have to. The grass would come back if you didn't do anything. Because God is God, and He likes green grass. You notice what Jesus calls those who worry? He calls us little faiths. Little faiths. You see, our, our worry, our anxiety is an insult to the character of God. When we worry, we're not believing the truth about God. We're not trusting the truth about God. We're doubting. Doubting that He sees. Doubting that He knows. Doubting that He cares. Doubting that He's more than able. Beloved, hear me now. Faith is more than an acknowledgement that God exists and that we're going to heaven if we ask His Son, Jesus, into our hearts. Faith is a practical way of looking at the world. And it extends to all the areas of our life, not merely to the salvation of our souls. When we worry, we're telling God, I, I don't trust you to run my life, God. I don't think you're really in control. I'd better worry about these things. I need to do something to take care of myself because I'm not sure you're going to. But think about it. God takes care of the wild animals. He takes care of wild flowers. He even takes care of grass. Why wouldn't He take care of you? You're His child. Say, I'm His child. You are. We possess a Heavenly Father who will fulfill our necessities. Let's revisit the birds and the flowers just briefly. It's easy for me to picture a swarm of birds flitting about the mountainside as Jesus gestures to them and, and, and recites to them these words. Look at the birds of the air. They did not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? 
And then to further illustrate his message, he points out the exquisite flowers gracing the landscape. And you see there in verse 28, he says, Consider the lilies of the field. They do not labor or spin, and yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. Yet that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today, and tomorrow is thrown into the fire. Will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? So he's employing this simple, straightforward, yet profound approach, teaching his disciples and us the relevant truth that the birds and the lilies don't devote any time to worrying and that our Father tends to their needs. And because we, his children, have far greater worth than these creations, why shouldn't we have faith that our Father will take care of us as well? Aside from revealing a deficiency in faith, worrying functions as, a, as it really is a type of self-exaltation. As we begin to fret about the future, we ought to ask ourselves some questions. We ought to ask ourselves, what's my perspective? Do, do I truly comprehend who He is and who I am? What to say to ourselves, don't dread the future. Have faith in God's promises. My Father's got this. I refuse to take on His role in my life through unnecessary worrying. I'm going to find comfort in His care and be joyfully thankful for His providential care. I'm going to trust in the significant and invaluable promises of my Father, knowing that His care surrounds me. But we're important to our Father. Our Father cares for us. And then Jesus says, and besides all that, it's the pagans who worry. Look what He says beginning in verse 30. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow's thrown into the fire, will He not much more clothe you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans, the Gentiles, run after these things. Church family, too many believers today worry so much, hear me now, that they could be taken for atheists. More on that a little bit later. They're living their lives as if God is irrelevant. Beloved, that's what pagans do. But being a pagan isn't just characterized by idol worship and frog sacrifices. A pagan is someone who believes his life, among other things, revolves around food and drink and clothing. Pagans see life as being synonymous with the account of the number of possessions that one accumulates. They spend lavishly, they hoard wealth because they don't believe there's a God who's watching and safeguarding their actions. Allow me to stop here just for a moment because I know some of you might be asking, you might be wondering something along these lines, but what if God doesn't provide for me? And they're Christians who are facing starvation. They're believers. Just this past week in East Pakistan, who were forced out of their homes. Homes burned. They were murdered many of them. There have been countless devout Christians this year who will succumb to car accidents and cancer or cardiac arrest. Doesn't God promise to provide for them, to safeguard them? Beloved, those are good questions. Those are fair questions. Those are honest questions that Jesus would have anticipated. And they wouldn't have taken any of the biblical writers by surprise. John writes about the martyrs in Revelation Paul told the believers in Rome that even in hardship, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword, slaughter, that Christ's own would be more than conquerors. 
Jesus told his disciples in Luke 21, verse 16, You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head will perish, but your endure, by your endurance you will gain your lives. Church family, Jesus never told the disciples, and he never has told us today that Christianity is a cakewalk where when you're saved, you get a get-out-of-suffering-free card. So to the questions I said some of you might be asking, what about all those who've suffered, God? They counted on you, so can we count on you too? First, let's not forget the context here. Jesus is talking about people having to choose between serving money or serving God. In Luke 12, we looked at this last week, Jesus tells us about rich fools who build bigger barns and worry warts who store up earthly treasures. And his point is, they're not going to die on account of being overly generous. There's that, but that's only part of the answer. The real answer is found in verse 31, verse 32. Your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. What is them? Verse 30 and 31 suggested it's what? Food and drink. And what do we need those things for, beloved? Life, right? We need it for life. God knows what we need to keep on living so long as He wants us to live. God knows that we need clothes and food and drink to live, and He will give us all the clothes and food and drink we need to live until our time to die. This is based on a profound theological truth. God is pretty smart. He is. He sees us. He knows who we are. He's not napping. He didn't take vacations. He's not like the parent who gets distracted and locks their child in the back of the car at the grocery store when he's only eight or nine years old. He's for you. He's not against you. He didn't guarantee to fulfill every extravagant desire that we have. He didn't promise freedom from trials and tragedies, but He does. Assure us that our Father will provide what is necessary for us to glorify Him and to live out all the days that He has written for us in His book. All that may sound oversimplistic, but it's not. It, in fact, it is amazingly profound. Jesus is telling us that there is more to life than living we're going to die. So our goal should not be to simply stay alive. We'll fail at that. If you try to save your life, you will lose it. Beloved, we are here to do more than avoid dying. God will give you all the food and drink and clothes you need to live, Jesus says. But if I want you to stop living, you'll stop living because I'm in control of that too. You're put here for a reason, beloved, bigger than just to live. We need to be consumed with the kingdom. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Jesus is saying, be consumed 
with seeing God's reign and rule over your life and your family and your church and the lost peoples of the world because the kingdom is what really matters. Jesus, beloved, wants to set the warrior free. We have nice clothes and expensive jewelry and a vacation house in the mountains or at the beach. The tendency is to worry about them. What if an accident happens? What if there's a fire? What if somebody breaks in? Jesus says, how about a better treasure? Why not lose yourself for the things that will last? Be consumed with the kingdom. Be kingdom-focused. Be consumed with God's reign and rule over your life, your family, and your church. Spend yourself for the things that will last forever, Jesus says. Make it a top priority to introduce more people to the king and to lead them into the kingdom, to disciple them under the authority of both the king and his kingdom. Jesus doesn't promise us that our lives will be free from trials and tribulation. On the contrary, He assures us that we will face them. But He'll be with us as we do. And then we can know joy. Joy, not mere happiness, but joy that endures and sustains in good times and in times of great trial and tragedy. If we prioritize wealth, anxiety is sure to follow. If we make career our God, we are destined for dissatisfaction. Making our health, our appearance, even our children the center of our lives is a recipe for frustration. Beloved, let us not be consumed with weary for lesser things, but with a passion to seek and to go on seeking the kingdom above all else. If we're going to defeat anxiety, we must live like we really believe what we say we believe. And God will take care of us. Beloved, there's nothing more important than the Lord. Say that with me. There's nothing more important than the Lord. Do you really believe that? Most of us would very quickly say yes. But if we really believe that, there's nothing more important than the Lord. Why do we, by the choices we make and the things we give ourselves to, so often seem to be saying that everything else is more important? Many have stated that far too many folks who identify as Christians, are practical atheists. About this, John Piper writes, doing things in secret that you are ashamed for others to know is practical atheism. And he asks the question, God's knowing doesn't count? Not, Not many who identify as Christian deny God with their lips, but millions deny God with their lives, claiming to believe in God on Sunday with their lips, but giving their lives over to other things throughout the remainder of the week. I know some of you cringed. I saw some facial expressions when you hear that word atheist applied in this way, but I suggest to you that it's not too strong a word to describe those who say they believe in God, but walk as if there is no God. Knowing God's about more than having an awareness Beloved, that He exists. It's about having a relationship with Him. Being in a covenant relationship with Him. Bound to Him. Loving Him. Serving Him. Glorifying Him. Trusting in His provision and plan for your life. 
Beloved, let us not be among those who give lip service to God and fail to give Him life service. Listen, church family, we've got to get to the place or come back to the place or maybe get there for the first time where God absolutely has first place in our lives. There are two things more compatible than oil and water. It's faith and worry. Well, for example, would you, would you call it faith if you gave something, say it's something you really, really treasured, and you gave it to a friend and asked them to take care of that and to watch that for you, and then you laid awake all night worrying about whether they actually would do that or not? Is that faith? And can you call it faith when once you've trusted in the Lord for the saving, saving and keeping of your eternal soul, if, if you're often bound by, by anxious thoughts and doubts about whether or not you're His? Believer, it's a biblical principle that when we really have faith in a thing, when we really trust anything, we cease to worry about that thing in which we have faith. And we, when we worry, it's plain proof that we do not trust, that our faith is not real faith, at least when the rubber meets the road. When we take an honest look at the church today, do we see genuine faith? Luke 18, at the end of the parable of the persistent widow, which is designed to teach us about persistence in prayer, Jesus asks a penetrating question. He says, when the Son of Man comes, in other words, when I return from my church, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? When he returns, given that it's been 2,000 years, will he discover anyone as persevering as that widow? Upon his eventual return, which is certain... Will he encounter individuals engaged in prayer for his coming? When we look at the church today, it seems that there are not many who are genuinely interested in, genuinely enthusiastic about Christ's return. But listen, authentic Christianity is unwavering in its love for Christ, knowing that it was for us He died. Genuine Christianity is unshakable in its confidence in Christ, knowing that the grave couldn't hold Him, that He rose from the dead, and so shall we. And genuine Christianity is this too, church family, ever vigilant in hope, knowing that He will return as He has promised. In the meantime... He's going to care for us. Blessed are those servants whom the Master finds awake when He comes. This is from Luke 12. Truly I say to you, He will dress Himself for service and have them recline at table, and He will come and serve them. If He comes in the second watch or in the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. A.W. Tozier writes, Let us be alert to the season in which we are living. It is the season of the blessed hope, calling for us to cut our ties with the world and build ourselves on this one who will soon appear. He is our hope, a blessed hope, enabling us to rise above our times and fix our gaze upon Him. When He, re when he returns, is not as important as the fact that we are ready for Him when He does return. But we believe these things. Say we believe these things. I know you do. But we do get distracted so easily. And those distractions divert our attention, don't they? 
And I get it. I get it. It's easy to get comfortable in the things of this world and our love for this world and the good things we have in this life. Our family, our friends, our children, our entertainments can easily eclipse our hope for eternity, obscure our vision of the promises that we have yet to take hold of, distract our desires for glory, which we cannot begin to imagine, dilute our desires for the unseen wonders that are immeasurably beyond comparing with anything that we've seen or heard on this earth we call home now. Jesus wants us to understand His return and all that it means for us in real-life terms, with real-life impact. So again, let me ask, when He returns, will we, His followers, be found fervently anticipating His return, continually crying out day and night, is our desire for His appearing a passionate desire? Let me ask you this. Do we long for His second coming with the same hope-filled anticipation that the ancients had for His first? Hmm. I think you've got to agree that when Christ returns, He'll find lots of activity, a great deal of sincerity, and no doubt a lot of dedicated folks. I believe that. I believe that about this church. But will he find faith? Will he find faith? The one thing he values above all else. The hard, intense question to ask is, if Christ were to return today, would he find that you have been faithful, not by your definition of faithfulness, but by his? When we look back over our lives, may it be evident to all that we trusted in the promises of God. Even about food and drink and clothes. That every one of us who know the Lord, who have faith in His incomparable trustworthiness, demonstrated genuine faith by the way we lived our lives, demonstrated genuine faith by the abandonment of ourselves to a total and complete trust in Him. If you and I really believe that God is in charge, that He's on His throne, and that He loves us and will, as promised, meet our needs, then we can rest in His care. Of course, if for whatever reason you do not believe God will take care of you, then you will never be able to rest from worry because you will always feel like it's up to you to take care of all your needs, physical, emotional, even spiritual. Someone has said, look at verse 34. Someone has said, worry is the interest we pay on tomorrow's troubles. Worry is the interest we pay on tomorrow's troubles. That makes sense, doesn't it? Being anxious over what is yet to be and yet may not be at all is, is suffering in advance for something that may never happen. It's living in the what ifs. Well, what if this happens? Well, what if that happens? Well, what if it doesn't? And what if it does? We'll face it then, won't we? We can deal with it then, can't we? Jesus said each day has enough trouble of its own. We need to focus on today and let tomorrow take care of itself. Do you find yourself, beloved, sometimes borrowing troubles from tomorrow? I've seen folks who are constant worriers about not having something to worry about. Serious. So they look to tomorrow and imagine all the bad things that can happen. Make a decision not to be that person. 
Live today. Give tomorrow to God. Okay, I'm, I'm closing now. I really am. There's several great paradoxes found in Holy Scripture. Remember, Jesus told us if we, if we try to save our life, we'd only lose it. We mentioned that one earlier. But if we gave it away, we'd find it. A great and divine paradox. And of course, you remember the whole first, last, last, first thing, right? In our passage, we see that if we will only redirect our attention away from our trivial, mundane needs, like food, drink, and clothing, that those needs would be met by our Heavenly Father. Another great paradox. Of course, the world's taught us, and taught us well, that if we don't take care of our own needs, no one else is going to. God, on the other hand, asks us to have enough faith in Him to believe just the opposite. Trust me, He says. Fix your attention and affection on me, He tells us. Put me first, not yourself, Jesus says. And that's the very real challenge that we all face. To trust Christ in a practical sense. To live, again, to live like we really believe what we say we believe. To surrender to His Lordship over every area of our lives. This, you see, is the antidote to anxiety. You can't help but be anxious when you think that you're all alone in the world. But He's promised He'll never leave us or forsake us. When you think that everything's up to you, you can't help but worry. But God has promised to be our shepherd, our shelter, our savior, and our sustainer. You will suffer when you fail to have faith in the great providential care of your Father. But God has said, cast all your anxieties on me because I care for you. You'll be anxious when your focus is on yourself and your needs. But God tells us to count others as more significant than ourselves. You'll be apprehensive when you think you need to control people in the situations to get your needs met. But God says, I gave you my son. How is it that you can imagine that I will not graciously give you all things? You and I have a choice to make here, beloved. We have a choice to make. We can choose to borrow trouble from tomorrow and live life as if God is not there or we can trust Him in everything and seek Him with all of our hearts. Let's close with these challenging words from the prophet Habakkuk. Fig trees may no longer bloom or vineyards produce grapes. Olive trees may be fruitless and harvest time a failure. Sheep pens may be empty and cattle stalls vacant. But I will still celebrate because the Lord God saves me. The Lord gives me strength. He makes my feet as sure as those of a deer. And He helps me stand on mountains. Would you pray with me? Father, what a blessing to be in your house today. And we say that often, Father, but we mean it. It's a joy and a privilege and a blessing, true blessing, to gather together with the saints and to praise your name in song and prayer and the proclaimed word. We pray, Father, that your spirit is moved in hearts and minds. Those here who are, who are lost 
and they're headed for hell. Father, I, I pray today that they, their hearts have been kindled and enlivened and they're interested and they want to know more and that they'll come soon and talk to someone about what it means to know Jesus. Father, I pray for those who are struggling in their faith that they've, they, they've, they've backslidden. They're not where they once were and they desperately want to be back. They're in a valley, Father. They want to be back on a plateau. They want to be back on a mountaintop again. I pray you'll speak to those who feel the need to rededicate their life to your son, Jesus Christ, and to, to really walk like they believe what they proclaim to believe. I trust you in all things. Seek first your kingdom. Father, I want to pray for those who are, are, are there are guests, perhaps long-time guests. They've been coming here. They're members of a small group, whatever, Lord, they, but they've never united with Richland Baptist Church. I pray, Father, you'd impress it upon their hearts the need to be a part of this body, Father, in the sense that your word speaks about, whether it's the hand or the foot or the leg or whatever, Lord. You brought them here for a purpose. You have a plan for them and the life and ministry of Richland Baptist Church. I pray you'd make that clear and lead them to unite with this family of faith. Father, we love you. We love your word. And we're thankful for your Holy Spirit that convicts our hearts, teaches us the truth, and then gloriously, Father, empowers us to obey. Imagine. Thank you, Father. Praise you, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.